0: D, everybody, or as it's known in some American cultures, Death of Democracy Day. That's right, people head to the polls, although about, uh, what, 30% of North Carolinians have already voted, already voted in early voting and the absentee voting and such. Uh, we're going to talk today about the election. Now, I make no predictions because I stink at it, and I learned my lesson. I'm not going to make predictions on who's going to win races or anything, but I can give you information... And tell you what other people are looking at and trend lines and races to watch and that sort of thing. We're going to go over the red mirage, the blue surge, the red shift. All of these things are things you should be aware of before you start screaming about um, the elections being stolen. I'm going to tell you what to look out for in North Carolina specifically. We're going to talk a little bit also about the, uh, the DOJ with the election observers. Uh, bottom line on that is that it's not new. They've been doing that. For, for many, many years, it's not new. But we're going to go into all of these things. If you have questions or concerns about uh, the way the elections are being administered or things that you've heard or seen, uh, feel free. Give a call, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, so I mentioned 30% of North Carolina voters have already voted. In Mecklenburg County, uh, it's about 188,000 people voted early. So, And the breakdown on that is 16,000 absentee ballots and uh, 203. Oh, so you add the 16,000 to the 188 and that gives you uh, just over or just under 204,000 early votes, according to Mary Calkin's story at WBTV. Polls open at 630 this morning and they are open until 730 and you have to vote in your assigned precinct. Because our system is based on where you reside. And that's why driver's licenses serve as a very useful identification tool because we have a residency based election system. But I digress. Let me go over here to uh, Harmeet K. Dillon. She is the founder of Dillon Law and, and uh, uh, the Liberty Center as well. She is a Republican lawyer. And, yeah, LibertyCenter.org. She's out of San Francisco. She says, this election cycle, the GOP has recruited and trained over 80,000 poll watchers, poll workers. We have engaged over a million volunteers, conducted 5,200 leadership trainings to prepare for Election Day operations. They have filed nearly 80 lawsuits, retained dozens of litigators, trained hundreds more. The effort started last year. Uh, Once a long-running consent decree dating back to the early 80s, barring Republicans from engaging in Election Day efforts, that that consent decree expired. The judge literally expired, and the next judge refused the Democrats' efforts to extend it. She said, My firm alone is active in multi-states. Others are, too, though. Now you can sit around crying or get out and vote and bring neighbors to polls. Get involved, run for office, participate, and be the change you want. Sitting on Twitter and complaining does nothing. People are making huge sacrifices to run for office. Let's win and get our country back. And then they have a, uh, a website here, protectthevote.com um yeah so that's it that's a twitter thread that you just sent out thank you bakes in nc29 uh, appreciate the um, the tag on that so i could see that the red mirage do you know what this is this is where people think that the republicans have won and then all of a sudden a bunch of blue ballots come in and republicans lose so they call that the red mirage that is a term used by gop operatives not democrats according to jeff blair who he does a bunch of writing. I think he's at National Review. Uh, yeah, he, he's the co-host of Political Beats at National Review, and um, he's a lawyer as well. And <clears throat> he says, "I have no idea." Well, all right. So he's quoting a story here. Early election night results might not indicate final tallies, and why that's okay. This was an ABC News story that he's quoting, and you know, there's there's a lot of you heard the uh, White House press secretary Jean. Pierre, Karine Jean-Pierre, uh, she said, uh, you know, it may take days before we know when people are like, oh, they're already starting to steal it. All right, hang on a second. That is the case in some races that get that get very close. Remember just, what, the last election cycle. We had the, uh, the race for North Carolina's Supreme Court Chief Justice, and Paul Newby beat Sherry Beasley by 401 votes. And that took a long time for them to count all of the ballots, to count all the votes. Why is that? Well, they keep accepting absentee ballots, so like military overseas ballots and such. They they keep counting these ballots in North Carolina if they have a postmark on Election Day. So you can still, you know, mail your ballot in. Now, there is an effort underway to try to change that to make it three days prior, and it used to be before Election Day. The, the, the deadline used to be before Election Day. But over the years, that got changed and they put it at Election Day. And so there are some absentee ballots that do come in after Election Day. And they have a postmark of Election Day or the day before or something, which means that they did get dropped in the mail prior to Election Day. Those votes should count. I think everybody would agree with that, right? Those votes should count. Now, there are some people who say it doesn't matter if they dropped it in the mail, it has to get there by Election Day. Okay, well, that. That is the way it used to be, but then you have to move the deadline up, and you got to do a you know an, an educational campaign to let people know that as well. I'm fine with either of those mechanisms, but right now the law is that if it gets there by uh, uh, election day, or if, it, if if it arrives and it has the postmark now of, of election day or prior. Now this is what Sherry Beasley, as the sitting chief justice, this is what she tried to have tossed out. She and her lawyer Mark Elias, right, and the uh, the Democrat. Uh, super lawyer, Hillary Clinton's uh, go-between for the Steele dossier, oppo research, Russia collusion hoax. So uh, this was what they tried to argue in court was that uh, just because the ballot doesn't have a postmark date on it at all, the fact that it arrived, you know, the day after election day means that obviously it had to have been submitted prior to election day and no that's not actually obvious and so that that was thrown out but she wanted to count all of these ballots that had arrived after the election was over and they didn't have postmark dates on them or the or they were incorrect or something right so that's what she tried to do so that is one of the reasons why you might see in North Carolina remember every state has different rules like this North Carolina Uh, you there there's a 10 day canvas period after election day where they get all of the rest of these uh, ballots and it's usually not a lot but in a close race it could matter now you have other states other states where they are apparently morons where they say hey you know what let's not start counting our ballots that we already have on premises let's let's not start counting that until the polls close this is stupid it is. This is stupid. North Carolina does it, I think, the proper way, which is they start counting all of the early votes and the absentee ballots. They start counting those, I think it's at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So when the polls close at 7.30, they know here are the early voting totals. That, to me, is a better system, right? 7.30, the polls close, and usually within... I mean, unless, of course, the computers are all messed up, and that's pretty regular, but it, it does usually, all right, usually we get a dump that occurs within 15, 20 minutes or so, uh, and then we have all of the early voting numbers with the absentee ballot numbers, and you get a pretty good idea. Now, Democrats dominate in the early voting and absentee ballots now. So you should expect to see those numbers uh, favor Democrats way more than Republicans. But how way more is going to be our first indication of whether or not this is going to be a very good night for Republicans a kind of good night or or maybe not a good night at all let's talk 1110 and 993 WBT. Andrew Dunn, he writes for uh, he has his own Substack. It's called Longleaf Politics. Uh, highly recommended. I uh, used to work over. He used to work in newspapers and he used to uh, be the lieutenant governor. Uh, Dan Force he used to be his comms guy, so uh, knows politics uh, and and knows good data and that sort of thing. Anyway, he had a piece that he published uh, the other day, and one of the uh, people he interviewed was Paul Shoemaker, who's a big time Republican strategist and. Uh, What Shoemaker said was that if the Republican statewide candidates, okay, so think obviously Ted Budd, right, and um, the judicial races, right, but specifically Ted Budd, if you see Ted Budd losing to Sherry Beasley when they close the polls, And then they make the announcement, here are the early vote totals and the absentee ballot totals. And they put them all out there on the website. And you hear that Ted Budd is within about 100,000 votes of Sherry Beasley. Democrats are going to get blown out. That is, that's what Shoemaker says. That that gap at about 100,000 votes Republicans expect to blow through that easily on Election Day because Republicans vote more on Election Day and Democrats now vote more in early voting and in absentee voting. This brings me back to what Jeff Blair posted here up on the Twitter machine. He's talking about this story um, about how you know early election night results might not indicate final tallies and why that's OK. And, and this is true. There are tallies that are not completed even after, you know, even tonight when the votes come in and even with a hundred percent of the precincts reporting, those are unofficial results. They then go back and do a randomized audit of the, in North Carolina, they do a randomized audit. They say, all right, we're going to pull a couple of random precincts. We're going to run them again, make sure that the vote totals are all the same and that they match the, uh, the paper trail. Cause you know, like in Mecklenburg County, we have the, the paper ballot thing where you scan them in and all that. Um, And so they do a a spot audit. They take a random sample. And if they're all correct, then they uh, they certify the votes after the 10 day canvas period. You'll recall it was at that 10 day canvas period at that Board of Elections meeting. That's when they threw out the results from the North Carolina ninth congressional district that Mark Harris had won. That was at that meeting. Right. Okay, so this is called the Red Mirage. It is a very real phenomenon, but it is born of specific circumstances. And beware that it will show up in Michigan and Pennsylvania for sure tonight. Okay? Michigan and Pennsylvania. And who do you want to blame for this? The GOP legislatures. Okay? They're, they're the ones that have allowed this to persist. Boiled down, we now see sharp divides in early voting, which favors Democrats, and day of voting, where Republicans own it, in virtually all states. But Michigan and Pennsylvania, which both have tight statewide races and heavy early voting, do not start counting early voting numbers until after the polls close. So what happens? This is the red mirage. It's basically North Carolina in reverse, right? Here, we see all of the Democrat early vote numbers get posted first and then the republicans come along and chip away chip away chip away chip away and then surpass in these states like michigan and pennsylvania where they don't count the early votes until after the polls close well now you're counting day of voting and as you're counting the day of voting you see a lot of red 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 a lot of republican right and then all of a sudden boom here comes a bunch of blue ones those were the early vote totals that just dropped and those were all hanging out, waiting to be counted all at once. And it looks like a massive spike in, in, uh, in Democrat votes. Because it is. Because the Democrats own the early voting periods. So that's what you need to be on the lookout. And again, different states are different. They have different rules. So keep that in mind. If it's Michigan or Pennsylvania, they're not counting those things until the polls close. That's why you see the spike. Now, there's another thing that happens. They call it the blue surge. Right. So I've covered the red shift, the red mirage. The next up is the blue surge, right? This is where you see a lot of the uh the Republican gains. They they come in, they come in, they come in, they chip away, chip away in North Carolina. Again, I'm talking North Carolina, they chip away, they 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 move into the lead, and then all of a sudden you see a bunch of Democrat votes get dropped in later. <clears throat> like the McCrory Y. That's the <laughs> Oh come on! I kid the Macquarie YMCA. Just for years, they, it was always this. So they have these. So what happens is you get these large boxes. That you know something goes wrong. We are not really sure. Some machines weren't working. They're like, oh my gosh! I wanted to vote and I can't vote. So then the Board of Elections will issue like an emergency order to say they get to stay open for fifteen extra minutes. This happens every election, by the way. It happens in different places all over the place. It does not automatically necessarily prove fraud, by the way. It just means, you know, somebody couldn't get the PBE thing working, the little cartridges or whatever on the voting machines. They couldn't get that loaded correctly or uh, the machines went down, which is apparently what happened in Maricopa County again today. Again. Jeff Blair says the GOP run legislatures of both states and uh, so Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Arizona. These are all GOP-run legislatures. They all had ample opportunity to move to a model of vote counting that Florida adopted after 2000. You ever notice how Florida is able to do its elections so quickly and cleanly now? After the 2000 debacle, right, with the hanging chads and all of that stuff, now Florida has its act together. Other states should emulate what Florida has done. Right? They're already well into tabulation. All the early results are going to be posted up by 8.30. Right? North Carolina does the same thing. But the, these other states, they did not. Even though these are now swing states, right? These are battleground states, and they they got tight races going on. So the vote pattern tonight is going to look a lot like 2020. The day of votes, mostly from rural and suburban areas, Those come in first. Big GOP early numbers. Then cities and towns report. They do it slower, and they do it later, because there are more of them, right? Look, this was the case, I remember the first election I ever worked, it was for the Charlotte Observer, well, I think it was the, yeah, I think it was the York Observer, which was their satellite uh, paper down in York County, and I would literally get the numbers, they post the numbers in a courthouse, I think it was in Chester County, and I would get the numbers, and I would... Run outside to the payphone, and I would call the the observer newsroom and I would relay the numbers so they could get the the uh, the number count for the county race. So you, and so smaller numbers are counted more quickly. Big boxes take longer. Uh, let's see here. The day of votes. Mostly in rural areas, right? The cities and towns report slower and only much later in the night will the real Democrat heavy mail-in early vote counts in Pennsylvania and Michigan start coming in. Uh, He says it is not fraud, fools. (laughs) Right. No, but for people who don't know what they're looking at because their state does it better, their state, like North Carolina, I anticipate us knowing who won all of our, virtually every one of our races. There may be one or two very close ones that are going to come down to some, uh, you know, uh, absentee ballots that are still being counted as they came in today or something. But for the most part, there'll be some recounts or whatever, maybe some challenges. But for the most part, I expect us to know who won in North Carolina. But other states are stupid. okay? other states don't count. (laughs) They don't count uh, the early voting and the absentee ballots uh, today. They wait till after the polls close and then they start counting. And so it gives this red mirage. ninety WBT another reminder on this ed um, do not take pictures of yourself voting people illegal in North Carolina it is illegal to take photographs or videos um, of the voted ballots so just wait till you get out get your sticker then virtue signal to everybody about your moral superiority and how you care more than they do <laughs> <laughs> Right, so just wait till after you vote. Don't take pictures in the in the voting booth, okay? Even if yes, even if you bring your your kid in there and it's so adorable, do not take the picture of the ballot, okay? All righty, what else have we got? Uh what else to look for? Hang on, I got so many different things here. Uh the, oh, I mentioned Andrew Dunn from uh longleafpolitics.com and uh or longleafpolitics.substack.com. He's writing on the Substack This race is no longer close. What race is he talking about? U.S. Senate. He says U.S. Representative Ted Budd, the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate, has a lead in virtually every single poll conducted over the last six weeks, and that lead is growing. In Senate races, here's another kind of rule of thumb to keep in mind in North Carolina, you can generally add one or two points to the Republican candidate from whatever the polls show. Right. So whatever whatever poll you're looking at or whatever, just for the Senate race, just add one or two points to the Republican candidate, because that's usually how it turns out. And then he gives a whole bunch of uh, citations about that as well. North Carolina is uh, what are we I had it written down here? I think it's an R3. I think we are R plus three in this state. Which means. All right. So, however many votes the president gets, a plus three would be three percent more than that for the other races. We are so our electorate, being an R plus three, means we vote more Republican than we do, or more Republican for our state and local races than we do for the presidential races. All right. So Trump wins the state by like one percent. You should expect to see. State candidates win by larger percentages. Not always. Candidates matter, as I always say. But we are, we are a, a center-right. We are a more conservative state than we vote presidentially, which is that's kind of weird. It is, because for a long time, North Carolina used to be all registered Democrat, and we would vote for Republican presidents. But all the state government was always Democrat. I mean, there were reasons for that, right? They had the patronage system. They had the spoils system. They had nepotism, right? They had all of these ways that they would, you know, they had enforcement mechanisms where, uh, you know, they'd walk around the office at state government and local government uh, employment centers, and they would, you know, pass the hat for all these employees, and you had to donate money to the Democrat office holder. And if you didn't, then you probably didn't have a job very long. But you probably didn't get that job. Unless you were a Democrat and knew somebody who could get you in, that was the, the this is the whole patronage system. Anyway, so they, that's how they ruled the state for over a century and a half. Well, that and early on, um, you know, well, early on through, like, uh, uh probably around the '60s or so. Uh, also, the murdering of of black people as well. They did that, and 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 you know the the, the coup d'état that was uh, that was undertaken in Wilmington, which, by the way, Wilmington is sort of ground zero now for a big fight in the state Senate. There's a guy named Michael Lee. Not that Mike Lee. This is a different Senator Michael Lee. He's a Republican. He's an incumbent. And he's running against Marsha Morgan, Democrat. This is for New Hanover County. And it is a, I believe it was a D plus zero race. I got three different charts here. I'm trying. See, I don't have the fancy screens like they have on TV where I can just like swipe, swipe, swipe and get to the right and get to the thing that that shows it all and breaks it all down for you. I've got just print test. Now I've lost it. Now I can't. I think it's a D plus zero. Here we go. Here we go. See, I knew it was right here. Uh, New Hanover. Yes, I was correct. D plus zero. That is as toss up of a county as you can ask for. Michael Lee. Mike Lee. That is Senate District 7, D plus zero. And there's another true toss-up, and that is, uh, right now, Tom McGinnis. He's the incumbent Republican. He's being challenged by Frank McNeil. And that is Cumberland County and Moore County. That is also a D plus zero Senate race. Basically, you've got uh, 19, I think it was uh, 19... 19 plus 9 is uh, what? 28, yeah. 28 seats are going to dictate whether the Republicans get a supermajority in the state legislature. There are 19 toss-up and lean Democratic districts in the House, and there are 9 in the Senate. These are either toss-up or lean Democrat. And Republicans would need to flip or win, I should say, 14 of the 19 toss ups and lean Democrats. And Andy Jackson, I believe this is Andy Jackson from Civitas Center at the John Locke Foundation. Yeah. And he breaks these all down. He's got them all listed out. And I mean, some of these, like, for example, um, he's got two in Mecklenburg County, three, sorry, in Mecklenburg County. District 98, that is currently held by John Bradford the third, he's a Republican. District 98 being challenged by Christy Clark, that is an R plus one, R plus one. So, lean's Republican, but it's tight, and it's going to depend on turnout. Republicans need to run up the score in urban areas. They need to just... They, they need to get as many votes out as they can. They need to run the score up in the in the yes, in the rural rural areas as well, of course. But they need to run up the score in the urban areas. Republicans think that turning out to vote is irrelevant because they only get to vote for like one office on the ballot or something in places like Mecklenburg County. I know that's me. There's only, I have very limited options. In fact, I don't even get to vote in city elections because I'm in the unincorporated area. So I get county commission, some state races, judicial races, and those are all Democrats. And no, you're not getting my vote if you're a Democrat judge running unopposed. And uh, and stop asking me, stupid machine. I'm not filling in. I'm not giving them my vote. But they need so Republicans need to get turnout up in these districts because it helps the statewide and it helps the the larger uh, the higher races, I should say. Then there's District 104. This is the most Democrat leaning of the three in Mecklenburg that are uh, sort of toss up or lean Democrat. That's a D plus four. But remember, we are an R plus three state. So you add that in and you could see some movement back towards the center. And that's going to be that's unlikely. That's unlikely. But the prognosticators say it's it's grabbable. They might be able to beat Brandon Lofton, the Democrat incumbent. The true toss-up and the one that will uh, could very well determine who wins the supermajority, whether Republicans are able to pull it out, it's going to be District 103 in Mecklenburg County. Bill Brawley, former state representative, running again for this seat against Laura Budd. No relation to Ted. Bill Brawley, Laura Budd, that is a D-plus-two district. These are the big races. I'm, I've got a couple others that I'm going to be watching. But these are the big races. There are, at the Senate side, there are like four or five that everybody is watching, and that's going to determine uh, who controls the General Assembly. Keep in mind, there are two magic numbers here, three and two. Three House seats, two Senate seats, three and two. That's what Republicans need to flip. While holding all of their current seats, they need to flip three House seats, two Senate seats. They get a supermajority, and then Roy Cooper becomes a lame duck, unable to stop anything. Polls close at 7.30. One piece at a time. News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT. Andrew Dunn is on record as predicting that the GOP is going to win a supermajority in the state Senate, but narrowly miss out in the House. He says, I stand by that prediction, but I'm even less sure of it now than I was two weeks ago. The big reason is messaging. So it sounds like he's now not so sure that they're going to win a supermajority in the Senate. And he says it's because of messaging. Republican General Assembly members do not have a cohesive message for why they should be given more power. Instead, members are largely relying on the top of the ticket and the power of incumbency. Democrats, on the other hand, do have a strong unifying message. Their message is, elect us to sustain Governor Cooper's veto. The governor, for some reason, is still relatively popular in North Carolina. And voters are often suspicious of power. This may be enough to sway a small number of swing voters, enough to hold on to a few Democrat-leaning districts in the suburban areas Republicans need for a supermajority. I'm going to come back to that. For what it's worth, back in 2010, several polls had Democrats ahead in General Assembly generic ballot races. 2010. Republicans wound up swamping Democrats in districts that Democrats drew themselves, taking the majority for the Republicans for the first time in more than a century. Next up here, a quick look at uh, the judicial races. The polling on this from the John Locke Foundation found uh, the Republicans uh, both leading by like six to seven points over their Democratic counterparts. Um, He says, expect these races to track the U.S. Senate results fairly well, but end up a bit closer because there's going to be a smaller number of total votes. Democrats typically win the early voting period. Republicans do much better on Election Day itself. Republican strategist Jim Blaine pointed out the other day on a, a Spectrum News podcast that in recent cycles, Democrats typically make up 42 to 43 percent of the first early voting days. Republicans at 27 and a half. By the end of the first week, Republicans have caught up slightly. Then the last week of early voting is where the difference is made. In a good year for Democrats, that spread holds steady. In a good year for Republicans, uh, the early votes will catch up to a good degree. And that is exactly what has happened this year. But, of course, nobody knows... How much they have caught up, right? If they—that's why this gets to the uh, the comment that Paul Shoemaker said that if the GOP statewide candidates are down by a hundred thousand votes or fewer, when we get the initial dump of results from early voting and and absentee,s then you will be looking at a red tidal wave, because if the Republicans were able to close that gap to that extent before election day itself, it's going to be a bloodbath. Assuming registered Republicans and Democrats largely voted for their party members, that would mean the GOP would need to capture 53.5% of the unaffiliated early vote. Our state's unaffiliated voters largely swing Republican already, so it is certainly doable in this environment. That was Andrew Dunn. Um, What else here? I gave you the magic numbers. Oh, Yeah, so just real quick, the supermajority numbers. There are 120 House seats and 50 Senate seats, and 60% is a supermajority. So that means 72 seats in the House and 30 out of 50 in the Senate. That's what gets you the supermajority. And as I mentioned earlier, the Republicans' magic numbers, they need three House seats to flip, and they need two Senate seats to flip and keep all of the ones that they already have. Since Democrats broke the supermajority in 2018, Governor Cooper has vetoed 47 bills. He has vetoed more bills than every other North Carolina governor in history combined. Oh, but Pete, let's just fact check that. That's what the NC political media did. They fact checked that claim and they found it to be partially false or something like that or somewhat true. I forget how they framed it because it is true. Make no mistake. It's true. Cooper has vetoed more bills than every other North Carolina governor combined. But the caveat is that governors only got the veto power like 30 or 40 years ago or something. So it's not like through all of our, you know, 200 plus year history. Okay, but it is still every governor combined, right? All those old governors, I mean, they were only on, they could only hold term, uh, uh, hold office for one term. I think it was a six-year term. That was it. So... But we're counting them in this, too. Even though they only serve for six years, do we need another asterisk? Right, We need to have an asterisk and then one of the little crosses or something. We need to have all of these caveats to let you know the full context that Cooper hasn't been vetoing all of these bills at a historic pace. When, in fact, he has been vetoing bills at a historic pace. Okay. Um, do, do, this is the only way, though, that Democrats can force negotiation with the GOP-controlled legislature. And I understand the argument. I was on this morning with uh, Good Morning on BT with Bo and Beth, and Beth asked me this very question about the divided government question. Now, I've got some audio from a podcast called Do Politics Better, which is uh, it's hosted by a couple of lobbyists in Raleigh, and uh, as, uh, Brian Lewis and Sky David. And uh, they had Morgan Jackson and Nathan Babcock on a couple weeks ago. Jackson is the governor's political guy, and Babcock is a Republican strategist guy, and so they were discussing a lot of these uh, a lot of these issues. And this topic came up about and Jackson, who works for Governor Cooper, is making the argument that this is what people want, and this is what has benefited North Carolina so bigly over the last you know few years is that. Governor Cooper's vetoes are able to be sustained because the GOP cannot override his vetoes. Why can't they override his vetoes? Because even when Democrats support the legislation, even when they vote to approve it and it goes to the governor's desk and the governor vetoes it for a partisan political reason or whatever, it goes back to the legislature and the Democrats who supported the original legislation then peel away. They cave. They will not cross their own governor. It's the only way to preserve his power. And they don't want to cross him. And if they cross him, they get primaried. And now, one of the races that I'm going to be watching tonight is a race uh, between, uh, what's her name here? Val Applewhite and, I'm drawing a blank, Wesley Meredith. Because the guy who held the seat was Kirk Devier. Kirk Deviere was a progressive Democrat from Fayetteville and voted for the budget because it gave a bunch of money to Cumberland County. And he supported it. It was good for his county. And so he voted for the budget. And it got him primary. He was a bit too much of an independent thinker. He was willing to negotiate with Republicans to get stuff for his district. And Cooper had him primary by Val Alpawight. And now she might lose that race.